Please take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. We have been in this book for uh, several months, and we come this morning to the end of chapter 14. I'm going to read uh, Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. Revelation 14, 14 through 20, which is... um, at least the end of it is one of the most uh, graphic and maybe even gruesome passages in all of Revelation. Revelation 14, beginning at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, the golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. <clears throat> there are some things in life that we don't look forward to. Uh, things that uh, we either want to put out of our minds or put off of our calendars. Uh, Maybe if we don't think about it, it won't happen. Or maybe we can reschedule it for another date sometime much later. Could be a doctor's visit, could be a project at work or school, it could be a, a difficult conversation that has to be had. But try as you might, it's something that has to happen. There's no escaping it. That is certainly true in terms of where this world is headed. As much as the unbeliever may not want to think about it, as as much as the unbeliever might try to put it out of their mind, a day of judgment is coming. It's coming. And there's nothing that anyone can do to stop the inevitability of that day. The question that every one of us must be prepared to answer is not, is that day really going to happen? It is going to happen. The question for every one of us is, am I ready for that day? Am I ready for that day? That day will not be a joyful, happy day for all people. For, for many, it will be the most terrifying day that they will ever know. Now, God doesn't tell us this to scare us. He doesn't tell us this to, to make us live our lives in fear. 
He, he tells us this so that we would be prepared. Children, this is the most important thing you can ever prepare for. You know how it's important. School's out now, so you're not thinking school. But how important it is to prepare for a test. How important it is to prepare for a, a, an upcoming holiday meal. All kinds of things that, that we know it's important to prepare for. But this is the most important thing that you and I will ever prepare ourselves for. And that's why God tells us this, so that we would be prepared. We're going to look at this passage this morning in three parts. First of all, there is the judge, and then there is the judgment, and then there is the question. The judge, the judgment, and the question. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at the messengers, messages of three different angels, and, and basically, you remember if you were here, that these three angels were reminding us of the calling that we have as a church and as Christians. We have the calling, first of all, to proclaim the good news, the good news that does not change, the, the good news that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness, there is eternal life, there is hope. But at the same time, we also have the calling to announce to the world that judgment is coming. And that for all who will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the eternal wrath of God. Well now, as our passage begins, John looks, and you'll notice that in verse 14, he sees four things. First of all, he sees a white cloud. Now we don't, we don't see a, a whole lot of clouds around here, especially this time of year. It just so happens today's a cloudy day. But normally in the summer months, we, we don't see a whole lot of clouds here in the Central Valley. But, but children, you know that clouds can be very beautiful at times. Clouds can be really kind of interesting to look at. If you're ever in an airplane and you're, you're flying above the clouds, it can be pretty cool to look out your, your window and, and see the clouds that you're flying over. And there are all kinds of different clouds. There are cirrus clouds and stratus clouds and cumulus clouds. I think there's 10 different cloud categories. Children, you know that some clouds are really, really white, almost look like cotton candy. Some clouds are, are really, really dark, and we've seen some of those dark clouds with the storms that we had earlier in the year. All kinds of different clouds. John looks, and, and he sees a cloud, but the cloud he sees is not the kind of cloud that, that we would see in the sky. This, this cloud is a symbol of something. It's, it's pointing us to something. You remember that Revelation is filled with symbolic language, and, and this is the case here. This cloud is a symbol of something. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, um, God is often pictured as riding on the clouds. For example, Deuteronomy 33, verse 26 says there is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides across the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. Isaiah 19.1 says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And so in the Old Testament, God is often portrayed as riding on the clouds. And when God is pictured this way, it's a symbol of his majesty. It's a symbol of his glory. 
It's a symbol that, that God is not a God to be trifled with or played around with. He is a holy, just, and righteous God. Secondly, John also sees that on this cloud there is one like a son of man. Now, it's interesting to me. I I told you this when we started this book. Revelation, to be properly understood, we have to also understand the Old Testament. There's so many Old Testament connections with Revelation. There's one of them here. And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. You might be familiar with this passage where where Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 has a, a vision and, and if you look at verse 13, Daniel chapter 7, you'll notice what Daniel's vision is. And there's a, there's a direct connection with what John sees in heaven in Revelation 15. Daniel 7 verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, notice that the same language is used in Daniel that is used in our passage in Revelation. There are clouds. And there is the Son of Man, and and he rules over a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Children, who is this person? Who is this Son of Man who is riding on the clouds? Well, did you know that over 75 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man? John even describes Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 as the Son of Man. So you put all of this together, and very simply, when John sees this vision in heaven, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus Christ in all of his majesty, all of his splendor, and he's riding on a cloud as if it's his his royal chariot. It's a beautiful vision of Christ. And it begs the question, Is it possible that we have too low a view of Jesus? Is it possible that we have too low a view of him? Is it possible that that we view Jesus merely as uh, meek and mild? As as one who would never push his agenda on anyone else? And I would submit to, to us that perhaps we need a more robust view of Jesus. Perhaps we need a more biblical view of Jesus. Yes, he is loving, and yes, he is gracious, and yes, he is compassionate. And yes, he says to to all people, come to me and I will give you rest. But he is also the resurrected, ascended, glorified king of the earth and all things. Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. That's who Jesus is. Christ is ruling and reigning from his heavenly throne. Christ is the king of a kingdom that will never pass away. Shouldn't that make a difference in how we live our lives? 
Shouldn't that make a difference in, in how we conduct ourselves? Shouldn't that make a difference in, in how we carry out the ministry that the Lord has given to us here? And so John looks and he sees Jesus on a cloud, on his royal chariot. And then third, John also sees that Jesus has a royal crown on his head, a golden crown. Now children, you know what a crown symbolizes, right? A crown is um, symbolic of someone who is a king. You know, you can uh, go over here to uh, Burger King and you can, I think if, just if you're a child, you could try it if you're an adult, but you might look silly. You get a crown, right? You buy a, you buy a Whopper and fries and a drink and they'll give you a crown. Took my grandkids there a few weeks ago and they all got crowns. But you know that those are just play crowns. They're not real crowns. You're, you're pretending to be a king. You, you put that crown on your head, but that, that doesn't make you a king or a queen. You're just, you're just pretending. Jesus is a real king. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. But there's something else that's very interesting about this crown. The, the word that John uses here that is translated crown is the Greek word stephanos. And it's the, it's the Greek word that specifically was used to refer to the crown that the winner of a race would be given. And, and so let's say you won, a, you won a marathon or something like that, and you won that race. At the end of that race, they would give you the victor's crown. They would give you the stephanos. A little bit different than a, than a kingly crown. And, and so what we're, be to, we're being told here is that not only is Jesus the great king over all, but he is the great king who has won a great victory. What victory has he won? Jesus has won the victory over sin and death and hell. Believer in Christ, you, you can be comforted this morning that when John sees this vision of Jesus and he sees Jesus with this golden crown, it's a reminder to us that Jesus has conquered our greatest enemies. If I were to ask you, what, what are your enemies in life? You might have a number of different answers. But our greatest enemies by nature are sin and the devil and death and hell. But in seeing this vision, John is telling us Jesus won the victory over those things. And, and so as terrifying as the day of judgment will be for many, many people, Christian, you don't need to fear that day. You don't need to fear that day because Jesus accomplished the work the Father gave him to do. He earned perfect righteousness for you. He took your sin upon himself when he died on the cross. He merited eternal life for you. And, and when he rose from the dead, it was proof that he had won a great victory, an eternal victory. And then fourth, John sees a sharp sickle in Jesus' hand. Children, do you know what a sickle is? A sickle is a... It's a farming tool. It's got a, it's got a short handle. It's got a, a very sharp, curved blade that is used for harvesting crops. And so this passage starts off with this amazing vision that John has given. 
Jesus is the conquering king. He's not whimpering in a corner in heaven, wondering what he's going to do. He is the conquering king. He's the ruler of an everlasting kingdom. He has conquered sin. He has conquered Satan. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. And he's coming on the clouds of glory with a sickle in his hand. In other words, he's bringing judgment. So much for Jesus, meek and mild. So much for Jesus who won't push his agenda on anyone. And that brings us to the second part of this passage, and that is the judgment. You'll notice that in verse 15, an angel comes out from the temple. And and he he talks to Jesus. And he, he says to Jesus in verse 15, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now this is interesting because it, at first glance it, it might seem somewhat strange that an angel is giving instructions to Jesus. You ever read this passage and, and ask that question? Why, why does this, who does this angel think he is giving instructions to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's important to remember a couple of things. First of all, angels are simply messengers. Uh, The Greek word that is translated angel is the Greek word angelos, which simply means messenger. Angels are those who deliver a message. In other words, they're, they're not speaking on their own behalf. Secondly, though, it's also in order to understand whose message the angel is delivering, notice where the angel comes from. Children, where does this angel come from? He comes, notice, from the temple. Now, what do we know about the Old Testament temple? One thing we know is that that's where sacrifices were offered. That's where the blood of bulls and goats was shed that was pointing to the future shedding of the blood of Jesus, the only thing that pays for our sin. But in addition to that, another significant thing about the temple is that it represented the dwelling place of God. In other words, the temple was symbolic of the presence of God. And and so this angel who comes out of the temple and is speaking to Jesus is not speaking on his own behalf. He's not speaking on his own initiative. He's a messenger. He's a messenger who has just come from the presence of God and his message, notice, it's time. The hour to reap has come. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us this morning that there is a fixed day when Jesus Christ will come as the judge. Now, we don't know what that day is. The Bible doesn't tell us. And we're foolish to try to figure it out. We don't know when the day is, but we do know that it is a fixed day. And one day that hour will come. Now, as you look at some of the details of this judgment, you'll notice a couple of things. First of all, you'll notice the involvement of angels. An angel comes to Jesus in verse 15. Another angel comes out of the temple in verse 17. Another angel comes from the altar in verse 18. The the, the point is this. When Jesus comes on the day of judgment, he will be accompanied by his angels. 
That's also what Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 24, that when he comes in glory, all the angels will be with him. Matthew 13, verse 39, even says that the angels will be the harvesters at the end of the age. Now, now I confess to you this morning that I don't really know a whole lot of details about this. It's, it's all speculation, in a sense. But, but imagine what this will be like. Imagine this scene. Imagine the Lord Jesus returning and with him thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. So the first thing that we are told here is that the angels will be involved in this. It will be a a, a sight to behold. But the second thing we notice here is that there seems to be two different harvests. Take a look at verse 16. It says, So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's harvest number one. Now look at verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. That's harvest number two. Why are there two different harvests? Well, the first harvest is the harvest of God's elect people. This is the harvest of Christians, the harvest of you. John the Baptist alluded to this back in Matthew chapter 3 when he said, Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. The first harvest is where Jesus gathers all of his wheat, where he gathers all of the elect where he gathers all of his people from the four corners of the earth, he will gather them and he will protect them from the coming judgment. Not one will be lost. Not one will be swept away in the judgment. And did you notice here that that Jesus is the one who is swinging his sickle in the first harvest? John tells us in verse 16, it's he who sat on the cloud who did this. I love the imagery here. The imagery is that when Jesus comes, he himself will guard us. He himself will shield us. He himself will protect us from the wrath of God. You know, one of the things that should stand out as we make our way through this book is just how much our Savior loves us. In fact, it's one of the first things, it's one of the very first things that John tells us in this book. Chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Again, we we try to make Revelation so confusing, so difficult to understand, but at the end of the day, its design is for our comfort if we are believers. And here we see that when Jesus returns, he will shield us from the coming judgment. On that day when he returns and gathers his people and he gathers all of you, don't miss his love for you. The very one who humbled himself by taking on a truly human nature and coming to this earth the very one who lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live, 
that the very one who, who suffered all throughout his life on this earth, the very one who was beaten and nailed to a cross for you, he loves you so much that he will not allow you to fall away from him and he will not allow you to be swept up in the judgment. This is what we sing, right? He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. But that's not the only harvest on that day. John tells us of two more angels. One of them comes out of the temple. He's holding a sharp sickle. Another one comes out of the altar. He has authority over fire. We've already seen the significance of an angel coming from the temple. He's a messenger from God. But, but what about the altar? Why, why does this one angel come out from the altar? Well, there's a great connection within the book. If, if you have your Bible with you, go back to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. And notice the, notice the references here to the altar and, and also to fire because this, this angel who comes out from the altar in chapter 15, we are told he has authority over fire. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Notice the reference to the altar and to fire. Now, if you were here back in chapter 8, you, you might remember that what was being pictured for us there is that the, the prayers of God's people, the prayers of the saints, are going before God's altar. These are prayers for justice. These are prayers for vindication. These are the cries of God's people. And we pray the same thing today. Lord, how long? How long before you bring justice to this earth? How long will this unbelieving world blaspheme your name? How long will your truth be trampled upon? How long will this world persecute your people? Are these prayers ever going to be answered? Will God answer those prayers? Our passage here in chapter 14 tells us yes. Yes, God will answer those prayers. Revelation 14 is God's answer to all of those prayers that have been prayed by God's people all down through the centuries. This angel in chapter 14 comes out from the altar. It's signifying that our prayers have been heard. God has heard them. And our prayers will now receive their ultimate and final answer. So Christian, when you pray and when you are disheartened by this world and when you feel beat up by this world and when you feel disgusted by the wickedness of this world, know that for certain one day your prayers will be answered. 
One day God will send forth his angels out from the altar. And final justice will be served. Verse 19, the angel swings his sickle across the earth and he gathers the harvest and he throws the harvest into the great winepress of God's wrath. Winemaking back then was um, quite a bit different than it is today. Back then they would... um, they would pick the grapes and they they dump them into this big stone tub. And at the bottom of that tub, there'd be all kinds of holes. And, and underneath those holes, they would put buckets. And, and so back in the ancient world, they would, they would take the grapes, they would throw them into the tub. Uh, they'd take off their shoes, they'd climb into the tub. You're all thinking of I Love Lucy right now. They would climb into the tub and they would start squishing those grapes with their feet. And the the juice from those grapes would would go through those holes and they would go into the buckets. That's what's being pictured for us here. In, In verse 19, the unbelievers are thrown into the tub. They are thrown into the tub of God's wrath. And notice verse 20. The wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadium. John says that the, the blood is as high as a horse's bridle. The height of a horse's bridle, at least in that day, was three feet. So children, you can, I don't know what three feet is, you can picture about three feet high. It says the blood will be three feet high and this blood flows for 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia is about 200 miles. So you got this river of blood, three feet high, flowing for 200 miles. From here down south of Visalia, It's flowing. Now, as is true with much of this book, this is not, I don't think, to be taken literally, as if there will be this literal three-foot-high river of blood that that goes for 200 miles. But the purpose here is, is to show us how serious and how severe God's judgment will be upon the unbelieving world. Three feet high of blood for 200 miles. You can all picture it, right? You go out to the 99 and you put three feet high of blood and you send it all the way south of Isalia. Again, it's not to be taken literally, but it is to show us how severe the judgment of God will be. This is is really quite graphic. It's, It's violent and gruesome. But this is what unbelievers will face. This is what those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus will face. Jesus is coming. And he's coming as judge. And he's bringing a a judgment that is so horrific that, that we can't even comprehend it. That leads us to the third thing that we want to consider this morning, and that is the question. You might already anticipate the question. Are you ready? Are you ready? 
God has not left us in the dark about this day. There are some things in life that, that catch us by surprise. We go, I had no idea that was coming. That's not true with this. God has told us throughout his word, and, and if this is only the first time you've heard it, you're hearing it right now. Judgment is coming. Are you ready for this day? Now, some people will say, well, you know, I'll get more serious when I'm older. I'll get more serious when I'm less busy. I'll get more serious when life slows down. One day, one day I will, I will take more seriously the state of my soul. But you know what? One day, first of all, you don't know if you have another day. And one day the trumpet will blow. The final trumpet will blow. One day the warnings will end. And you and I have no idea when that day will be. What will happen to you on that day? You know, there's an interesting phrase in verse 20. If you look at your Bible in verse 20, you'll notice it, it says that the winepress of God's wrath was trodden where? Outside the city. The winepress of God's wrath was trodden outside the city. The city here refers to New Jerusalem. The city refers to the place where God's people will dwell forever and ever. And, and the picture is that the unbeliever will not be there. He will be outside the city. He will be outside the kingdom. He will be outside the place of eternal blessedness in the presence of God. But if you like to underline your Bible, in your Bible, underline that little phrase outside the city because there is within this phrase amazing good news for us this morning. Did you know that the Bible tells us that, that someone else suffered and was judged outside the city? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12 says that Jesus suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. See what that's telling us? It's telling us very simply that Jesus suffered the judgment of God outside the city. He suffered the judgment that we deserve he suffered the wrath of God that we deserve. He was in that place, in a sense, outside the city, suffering for us, being judged for us, for our sins, so that all who would come to him in faith would be forgiven of all of their sins and would never face the judgment of God outside the city. Christian, your Savior's already suffered that judgment for you. And so you don't need to fear it. It will be a terrifying day when the Lord Jesus comes in all of his glory, with all of his angels. But it's going to be a wonderful day for us. 
because on that day, we will see the one who took all of God's wrath so that we will never face it ourselves. And he will, on that day, gather us to himself and shield us from that judgment. And he will keep us safe. Are you ready for that day? If not, I urge you this morning to run to Jesus, to place your faith in him, and to rejoice that he suffered outside the city so that you would never suffer there, but you would dwell in God's presence forever. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the warnings that come from your word. We thank you that you tell us where this world is headed. You tell us where history is headed. You tell us that there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus will come. Father, if we are in him, we don't need to fear that day. But we pray this morning for those who do not know Jesus, that you would wake them to the reality of this day, that you would show them their sin and their guilt, that they might go to the cross and they might find in Christ the perfect Savior, the one who saves us from all of our sin and saves us from the judgment to come so that we may live in that city forever with you. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we in no way deserve it. Help us to be the most humble people on the face of the earth. And give us the courage, Lord, to tell others and to warn them to escape from your wrath and flee to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's sing number 468. Number 468. Jerusalem the Golden is uh, it's a very familiar hymn. Did you know that this is a very old hymn? Uh, a man named Bernard, Bernard of Cluny, wrote this hymn in the 12th century. So back in the 1100s, this man wrote this hymn. And, and one of the great things about singing some of the older hymns is that we are singing hymns that, imagine this, God's people have been singing for almost a thousand years. And so all through time, that's one of the, the great things about singing some of the more historic hymns, we're singing the very words that God's people have been singing for many, many centuries. 